Welcome to this sermon from Silver Lake Baptist Church. Our mission is to celebrate the greatness of God with all we are for the joy, hope, and renewal of our community. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to our message. We pray you will be blessed by your time with us today. Yeah. All right. Well, this is the reason that we're not outside is because I'm doing this today. I'm preaching. Let me, let me open us in prayer. Can you turn me down just a little bit, Chuck? That's good. Just a little. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word would speak to us. Speak through me this morning. By our Holy Spirit, help us to hear what you want us to hear so that we can do what you want us to do. We want to see your majesty and glory. You are so good to us. Your plans for us are beyond our comprehension. And I thank you that you have good plans for us. Again, open our eyes to what you have us to see and hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So, we, Will and I have been teaching through the book of Acts, you know, whenever we get a chance here, in between when James has to be gone. Um, that Acts, the book of Acts, which is a story of the beginning of the Christian church that, that, Luke, that Luke wrote. We're going to slow down. Paul had just finished his third missionary journey. He traveled from Macedonia to Jerusalem with a financial gift for the church there. God had told Paul that he would be facing arrest when he got to Jerusalem. The Jews in some of the places where he had preached came to town and stirred up the whole city into a riot, which was not the first time for Paul, dragging him out of the temple and beating him until the commander of the Roman garrison took him into custody, basically saving his life. The commander let Paul speak to the people and told them how he had come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. At one point, the crowd became angry again and started shouting for his death. The commander brought him back inside the barracks, where Paul told him that he was a Roman citizen. That meant that, he couldn't, that the commander couldn't torture Paul to find out why the crowd wanted him dead. It's the kind of thing they did back then. It makes ours look pretty good. The, the commander had to unchain him. So that brings us up to Acts chapter 22, verse 30. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he, why Paul, had been accused by the Jews, the commander released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. The council, here is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court with 70 men or so. This is the same Sanhedrin that found Jesus guilty and sent him off to be crucified by Pilate. Since 30 or so years had passed, probably everyone serving on the court was different. Apparently, the Roman commander could call a meeting of this Jewish high court. The commander didn't speak Hebrew, so he hadn't understood what the crowd had been so worked up about on the day before. So chapter 23, now verse 1. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience, before God up to this day. <laughs> wow. 
That is a bold opening statement. Paul's life is on the line, but he's not afraid. This right away reminds me of Proverbs 28.1. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. So how many of us can say that I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience? I know my conscience and I have struggled at times. But what is our conscience? The conscience is a person's internal witness or judge of their own behavior. The guilt over wrongdoing and the satisfaction over choosing right over wrong. The conscience doesn't set the standard, it only applies it. So that, for example, the conscience of a thief would bother him if he told the truth about his fellow crooks just as much as a Christian's conscience would convict him if he told a lie about his friends. Right? So the conscience isn't the thing that sets the standard, it only applies the standard that we have. As believers, it's important to distinguish between our conscience and the Holy Spirit's leading. And that itself can be difficult. How can we tell the difference? The best way is to know God's word so deeply and obey it so completely that our conscience, our sense of right and wrong, is aligned with what God wants. Promptings from the Holy Spirit will never contradict God's word although promptings from our conscience can. 1 John 3.19 says, We will know this, that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before him, in whatever our heart, our conscience, condemns us. For God is greater than our heart, than our conscience, and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So the Bible talks about a good or pure or clear conscience. Acts 24, 16, later, this is Paul talking to Governor Felix, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. In 2 Timothy 1, 3, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. In 1 Timothy 1.5, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The Bible also talks about seared or evil conscience. This happens when someone so frequently ignores the prompting of their conscience that it ceases bothering them. They just do whatever they want. That is what hypocrisy is. And a little more about that later. In 1 Timothy 4.2, Paul says, By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron. In Titus 1.15, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Hebrews 10.22 Let us draw near with a sincere heart and in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And another, one more thing about conscience is Paul warns against judging other people by our own conscience. 
1 Corinthians 10, 28. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience' sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? So, just because my conscience won't let me drink alcohol because of problems I had with it in the past, doesn't mean I can condemn someone else for drinking it in moderation. Okay, that's just an example. <laughs> there are a lot of, I can think of others that, especially driving, uh, I see somebody with a fish sti- sticker speeding past like, no, wait a minute. <laughs> that's not, I'm judging them by what my conscience would bother me if I did what they were doing, but that's, that's what they're saying, that's what he's saying not to do. The word of God is a standard, not my conscience. Paul wasn't saying in this statement that he, that he had never sinned. Or he also wasn't saying that it was his conscience was clear and that's what saved him, what gave him salvation. 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. It, he's saying here, um, it's not his conscience that made him, uh, yeah, that he's saved by, because God judges by his own word, and he's the one we have to please. When Paul said, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God, he's calling God as his witness in court to support the truth of his testimony that he's going to give. So back to verse 2. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him, beside Paul, to strike him on the mouth. Whoa. I guess the high priest doesn't like bold opening statements. This Ananias is not someone we've seen before in Acts. He was a high priest from around AD 47 until he was assassinated by Jewish nationalists in AD 66. He's described as greedy, hot-tempered, cruel, and pro-Roman, one of the very worst high priests. Luke doesn't say whether someone hit Paul or not, but Paul had a quick response. Verse 3, Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law, and in violation of the law, order me to be struck? What did Paul mean by whitewashed wall? Paul is calling Ananias a hypocrite, someone who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. It's quite the opposite of what God has commanded for judges and those in positions of authority. Leviticus 19.15, the Lord speaking to Moses says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Or in John 7.51, Nicodemus, one of, the, uh, one of the leaders, one of the Sanhedrin at the time, is speaking and he says, Our law, the Jewish law, does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? It's kind of <laughs> what uh, Ananias had just gone against here. Jesus used expressions like this, the whitewashed wall. Um, Matthew twenty three twenty seven. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, 
but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So verse 4, But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? This is a rhetorical question for emphasis. What they're saying is, How dare you insult the high priest? I also noticed these bystanders didn't seem to be shocked or surprised by Ananias' command to hit Paul. Standard procedure, I guess. Even though it wasn't supposed to be. To verse 5, Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul's quoting Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. I don't think he's being sarcastic or ironic here. Paul is admitting that his response was not appropriate to someone in authority. He's saying, I was wrong to speak that way. He didn't recognize that Ananias was the high priest. He'd only been back in town for a few days and was hanging with a totally different crowd than he used to in the old days, the Christians. So this is a thing in our culture today. We, a lot of us have trouble, have difficulty respecting authority whether it's parents, bosses, teachers, politicians, police, even church leaders. But in fact, all authority is put in place by God. Romans 13, verse 1 through 7. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. (laughs) What is that again? For because of this, you also pay taxes. Whoa. (laughs) <laughs> for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. So it doesn't say that we can cease obeying or respecting authority if we disagree with them or if they are wrong or if we didn't vote for them, or even if they're bad. I promise you that the authorities in Paul's day were much worse than those around us today. This is, I think it's partly because of the checks and balances these found, uh, this country's founders put in place, because they believed in the fallen nature of man. All have sinned and no one is perfect. But the bottom line is, authorities have been placed in our lives by God for our good. We owe them our obedience and respect for that reason. 
Verse 6. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So going back to the beginning of that little thing, verse 6, how do you suppose that Paul could tell there were two distinct groups of people? Maybe by the way they dressed? I don't know. I can imagine two groups, the two groups keeping separate within the courtroom. I get the impression this kind of division was fairly common between them. So do you think Paul was trying to stir up an argument? I know that's what I thought when I first read this. He certainly did stir up an argument, but I don't think that was his main intention. Paul was a Pharisee. We usually think of the Pharisees as the ones that Jesus condemned as hypocrites. But Paul here is identifying with his group. I think the main point of what he said is that I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. The hope is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, so we can be too. Paul was sharing his hope in Christ. He was sharing the gospel. So who were the Sadducees? They, they were wealthy and powerful. They were most of the chief priests who had been ap- appointed by the Roman government. Seems odd, doesn't it? But they were rationalists and materialists. They really did not believe in spiritual things. They seemed most interested in power and money. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. By contrast, the Pharisees were experts in all the scriptures and taught the common people to follow them, too. Their downfall was their hypocrisy, their pride and self-righteousness, their propensity to add to and sometimes cancel out God's law. Verse 9, And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. So, a bunch of the Pharisees jumped up and started defending Paul. They were giving credence to Paul's vision on the road to Damascus. That seems surprising. The Pharisees' beliefs were certainly closer to Christianity than the Sadducees were. The Pharisees hoped for the Messiah and expected the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age, but they missed when Jesus they missed Jesus when he came. Paul was identifying what he had in common with these guys in order to share the gospel in a way they could relate to and understand. This is an example we can follow in our relationships today. Think of it as focusing on your similarities rather than your differences. Nicodemus, who I mentioned earlier, who put Jesus' body in his own tomb, was a Pharisee. In Acts 15, we read that some of the Pharisees had become believers. The good news here is that God can even change the hearts of hypocrites. No one is beyond his salvation. Verse 10, 
And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The commander saves Paul again. Well, so much for finding out why everyone's mad at Paul. Paul is clearly controversial. Verse 11, But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side, at Paul's side, and said, Take courage. Stop there. Luke doesn't really say whether this was a vision that Paul had or that Jesus physically stood at Paul's side. He can do that, you know. But that's not really important. His words are what's important. Like so many other times, Jesus spoke with words of comfort and encouragement. Acts 18.9 The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city, Corinth. And here God is speaking to Isaiah in Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And in Matthew, Jesus is talking to to the disciples. When the disciples saw him, Jesus, walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! They cried out in fear. Ah! But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Even though it's not mentioned here, Paul certainly needed the encouragement that Jesus gave him. God knows what we need when we need it. He often uses other people to bring that support. I can't tell you how many times God has used someone's word in my life at just the right time just when I needed it. You can be used by God to encourage someone too. When you feel the Holy Spirit prompting you to say an encouraging word to someone or send an uplifting message, don't hesitate. Do it. So back to verse 11. The Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So Paul would go to Rome, but maybe not in the way he had planned or imagined. In Acts 19.21, Now after these things were finished, this is earlier, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So, Despite being beaten, arrested, hauled away in chains, Paul's time in Jerusalem had not been a failure. The real measure of his success was whether he faithfully followed the Lord's leading. And he did. Will you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us. I thank you for encouraging words that you uh, put in others' mouths to, or even in your word. You know that when to bring it to us, when we need to hear it. I thank you for this day. I thank you for the chance to share your word and worship you in a way that you're honored by. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Have a great day. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out our website at www.silverlakebaptist.org.